Over the next three Sundays, as we talk about imperfect people, our scripture texts are going to be from Paul's letters, first and second letters to the Corinthians. This morning's lesson is from the first letter to the Corinthians, reading from the sixth chapter. Listen now for the word of God. When any of you has a grievance against another, do you dare to take it to court before the unrighteous instead of taking it before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels, to say nothing of ordinary matters? If you have ordinary cases then, do you appoint as judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to decide between one believer and another? But a believer goes to court against a believer and before unbelievers at that. In fact, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud and believers at that. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Fornicators, adulterers, idolaters, prostitutes, sodomites, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, robbers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what some of you used to be. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. In the name of God, who grants grace through Jesus Christ, by the power of this Holy Spirit. Amen. As the coronavirus continues to wage its uh, terrible war with humanity on our planet, uh, it's, almost, uh, it's had almost incalculable devastating impacts, not just here in our community, but in every community on the planet. There is a, a rising hope on the horizon with the almost miraculously speedy creation of vaccines that will eventually offer us some relief from this long nightmare, but it is still very difficult for anyone to answer the question of when some of us might be able to return to something like normal. That's a loaded question for many of us because getting back to the precise moment we were in a year ago when the pandemic first struck may not be everybody's first desire. That point a year ago found us in perhaps our usual normal way of life that was in many instances not so ideal. Found many of us a year ago wrestling with bad financial decisions or relations that were relying more on tolerance than on intimacy. Ways of thinking about ourselves that kept us in a perpetual loop of despair and depression. Whatever our normal may or may not have been a year ago before the pandemic struck is not necessarily a normal that all of us wants to get back to. If anything, the pandemic has turned up the heat on many of the issues and problems many of us were already trying to avoid. Addressing our finances, our relationships, our own inner dialogue, just to name a few. If We've perhaps been people who have difficulty being alone. Uh, well, the pandemic has certainly not made your life any easier. If there are a husband and wife having a difficulty spending quality time with one another, 
Uh, how's that working out for you now? If your busyness was a way of denying issues that you were needing to deal with, are you still in denial about what those issues are and still just waiting for normal to come back? It's a familiar dilemma uh, for many of us in just our regular understanding of life and what's come our way, many of us. Anytime our lives have been disrupted by unforeseen events, it brings us up short and kind of pulls the rug out from under our regular lives. And it can be any number of things causing us to ask new questions about our lives and some of the choices that we've made or avoided making. The death of someone we love, the sudden loss of a job, an unexpected diagnosis or illness, the heartbreaking betrayal of a friend. It can be a wide variety of things. It just pulls the rug out from under us and leaves us scrambling to make sense of our lives. We usually go through these various kinds of challenges alone or with a small company of people or friends or family. But this pandemic means that, that millions and millions of people are struggling with the rug being pulled out from all of us at the same time. Many of us may be coping with it pretty well. Many of us, sadly, are not. And even if our former normal wasn't all that great, many of us are still desperate uh, to get back to it. Now, in our scripture for this morning from 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us, however, uh, that that way of looking at things is, is all wrong. Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, one of the most important cities in Greece in his day. It was a great center of commerce and travel that brought a great variety of people and, and culture together, a very cosmopolitan city in its day. Paul had helped to establish the Christian church in Corinth and visited there many times, having over the course of time kind of an up and down uh, relationship uh, with the Christian community there, sometimes speaking well of them, many times uh, not. We'll be looking at Paul's relationship with the Corinthians over the next few weeks, uh, describing Paul's letters to the Corinthians as examples of his trying to deal with uh, imperfect people in many different phases. We may be tempted by our uh, supposedly lofty position, sitting as we do in the 21st century, uh, to look down on these early Corinthians as examples of a more primitive time and people, but that's not the case. We are the Corinthians. They are us, or is it they are we? We're, we're the same. English teachers can tell me later. In Paul's letters, he sometimes commends the Corinthians for the ways they are living out their faith in the community, but more often than not, he is being critical in some way, as in today's lesson uh, from the sixth chapter. It seems odd, perhaps, that Paul is focusing in these verses on Christians taking one another to court, especially since his focus in the fifth chapter and in the seventh chapter on either side of this chapter is uh, him dealing with various issues of sexual immorality. And in between them, he brings up this issue of Christians taking other Christians to, to court. Lawsuits between Christians seems a little more mundane and less important, maybe kind of boring. But Paul sees an important issue here. Paul believes that following Christ has consequences, not just consequences later on, but real-life day-to-day consequences right now. Being a Christian means that we no longer do what the world around us may 
may consider normal. One Christian taking another Christian to court apparently was normal, or at least more normal than Paul thought it should be. Paul said it should not be that way. If you have ordinary cases, he asks, do you appoint as judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to decide between one believer and another? But a believer goes to court against a believer and before unbelievers at that. Now, it may seem somewhat incredible to our ears today to hear Paul say that Christians should keep their disputes between one another uh, in-house, just among us. I have to be honest to say that there is a, a pretty large part of me that wants no part of what Paul is talking about here. I have been, I was admit, before I retired, I was in very, various churches for 40 years, and I've had my share of church meetings over those years where I've dealt with church members who are having a very hard time acting even charitably with other members, not to say like Christ. To suggest Christians should decide legal matters between each other? Uh, I say no way. My, my first thought is that Paul is expecting way too much of us here. For him to think we could pull that off in any Christian way, any appropriate way, it just seems far off. There's no way, I think, we could be expected to pull that off. But then my second thought that it's probably just another indication that we expect far too little of one another. And we've spent 2,000 years as the Christian faith expecting way too little of ourselves and one another. We dodge, try to dodge Paul's very strong gaze here because it frightens us to think about making ourselves that vulnerable, that accountable, that transparent to one another, even if we do like and love each other uh, quite a bit. We consider ourselves, we consider one another, and we protest, oh, Paul, you, you can't be serious here. We are very imperfect people. That's what we're talking about these weeks. Don't put us on the hook for each other like that. We're only human after all. How many times have you said that or thought that as an excuse for not taking ourselves or one another all that seriously. Some of you, uh, if you've been a long time United Methodist, may know that there is a, a pretty involved and, and lengthy process before someone gets ordained as a, as a minister in the United Methodist Church. There are a wide variety of papers and interviews and evaluations that stretch out over several years before a candidate can stand before the clergy session of the annual conference and be voted on whether or not you're going to be accepted or not whether you're going to get a thumbs up or a thumbs down. You usually get a thumbs up, but the thumbs, downs, th thumbs down do come, yet people like Heather and I still sneak in, you know. <laughs> there are many steps in this elaborate process, but among the many historical questions that have been asked, passed down to us through the years from our founder, John Wesley, to today, are some 24, I forget what the, I think it's 24 different questions, but they begin with these. Have you faith in Christ? Seems like a good place to start. Then the second, are you going on to perfection? 
Third one. Do you expect do you expect to be made perfect in love in this life? And then fourth, are you earnestly striving after it? That's how the questioning begins. There are other questions, of course, about church order and structure and finances and various things that are important. But the questions begin with this focus on perfection. Perfection is the basis upon which we operate and live as United Methodist pastors, but not just as pastors, friends. That's the calling upon all of us as followers of Christ. If we aren't aiming earnestly after perfection in love in this life, as far as Wesley was concerned in asking the questions, if, if that's not what you're after, please take a seat. Don't, don't bother it's not the time for us to hear the question and go, oh, I'm only human. I'm a very imperfect person after all. You, you can't really mean that. It's not that, you, that Methodism is, as, is after perfectionism. You know a lot of people, I know a lot of people struggling with that particular uh, malady. It's not the matter of keeping your, your fingers and your toes firmly within the lines at all, at all times and never making any mistakes or miscalculations of any kind. That makes the focus of our living too inward, too much about ourselves, where we are thinking only about what we're doing and if we're on the, on the hot seat for anything. Instead of living a life where the focus is always on the grace of God and that grace at work in our lives, bringing us closer and closer to some semblance of life, as a Christian who is following Christ. What we are called not only to believe, but to pursue earnestly, is the belief, the conviction, that God can draw me and God can draw you closer and closer to Him in this life, and therefore to the kind of life revealed in Jesus Christ. That's a process of growing in God's grace that we call sanctification. It's a process where we become sanctified or be, where we become more holy because of God's work within us. It's a process that we're seldom a part of as long as we're living a life with a credo. Uh, we're only human. Don't expect very much from me. I'm doing the best I can. I'm pedaling my bike as, as fast as I can. Don't ask me to, to do anything more. But that is our credo that leaves very little wiggling room for the work of the Holy Spirit when we're already pretty content and settled with the kind of life we've got. Don't ask any more. We're already full up. Our plate's already, already pretty full. But when we begin to believe that the grace of God really can help us love more perfectly, more fully, more maturely, that may be when people around us begin to see something like evidence of God's good work within us. It's what Paul, in his letter to the church in Galatia, in the fifth chapter of Galatians, says it's the fruit of the Spirit. They begin to see things like love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control. Have you been accused of such things lately? 
when we are all too quick to, to duck down and to hide, when we hear God walking in the gardens of our hearts, claiming, oh, we're only human, you can't expect us to be perfect. That's when we duck out of this whole sanctifying process and try as best we can to settle for what the world tells us is normal. Why don't you just be normal? We are called to be those people so earnestly striving after perfecting God's work in us that we're willing to step outside what the world says is normal. That's when we need, need God to, to open us up, to wake us up, to being made so generous, so patient, so faithful, so kind, that the people around us become amazed and they say to us, you're not normal. And that's when we say, well, thank you very much. I'm, I'm so delighted that, that you see me as abnormal. Are you still just waiting for life to get back to normal the way it was a year or so ago? Well, Paul says, aim higher. Paul tells us normal is over. And it was over as soon as the risen Christ stepped out of that tomb over 2,000 years ago. It's been our calling ever since. And it's our calling today. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.